0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Isaiah 64, 1-9, and 65, 17-18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways." Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name and who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember, not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks,
1: Maddie. Well, welcome. My name is uh, Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church at Music Row and um, glad to see you on this liberty. I did wear white for a reason because it's my last time to wear it, I guess, until... A long time from now. Thank you for those who laugh. That is a dumb joke, but I just, I'm one of those that tells dumb jokes. Um, so in my neighborhood, uh, some of you actually live in my neighborhood, so you're going to know exactly what I'm going to talk about. Um, <clears throat> they have put up a stoplight. Uh, and the reason is, is because we live in a, um, in a flood plain. And there's a bridge there that, that basically connects. Just one bridge that connects this backside of our neighborhood It's actually one of the only ways in and out of that neighborhood. There's kind of an escape hatch if something happens. But uh, they're doing work on this bridge because it's damage and flooding and all sorts of stuff. And they need to do probably more work. Well, anyway, instead of having, you know, like when you're on a one-lane road and they have stop signs and they stop traffic on one side so the other side can go. Well, instead of doing that, they have a stoplight. And um, you have to sit and they even put a sign up that says, uh, it says, Light will only last three minutes, you know, because I know people are going to get really frustrated with this. Well, it's, it's interesting now to pull into my neighborhood, which there's no one there, and it's just so easy. And you pull up to a light, and you're just sitting there. And sometimes behind people, and all I need to do is take a left. I don't even need to go across the bridge. It's really more for people crossing the bridge. And I'm like... Okay, what, what's going on right now? Like why do, you know, and it's funny to see who, like people in a golf cart or in a car, like who are the rule followers and who aren't, you know, they pull up to the, uh, the stoplight and they're like, I'm just going, you know. Uh, and uh, some people don't, I, I tend to be, I guess, the one who runs it. But uh, the people in here, especially that I know of that are on the other side of the bridge, uh, they don't have other ways out. This is their only way out of the neighborhood. So I'm always fascinated when I talk to people and even some of you in this room that say, yeah, I just have to wait there and I don't know what's coming on the other side. Even if it turns green, sometimes there's like people just coming across the bridge and they don't care about the red light. But the the whole point is that they're sitting there and they have to wait for this light. It's just this constant waiting. And even when I'm on my side and I have plenty of ways to get to my house, I always somehow my mind takes this route and I'm just sitting there waiting at this light. You know, there's actually a a stat that says Americans spend 37 billion hours a year waiting. Waiting in lines, waiting in life. It is the dominant cost of our lives, It said, to wait. It creates more anxiety. It creates more boredom, cynicism, just to sit and wait. Uh, One article even said that The, uh, it says, uh, stress, boredom, that nagging sensation that one's life is slipping away. The last thing we want to do with our dwindling leisure time is to squander it in stasis. Just to sit there. Even if there's a sign that says three minutes, right? This passage is an interesting one. We're actually finishing our series in Isaiah. And Isaiah is uh, a a prophet. Maybe some of you have heard of that. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, prophecy is this portion of the Bible that's somewhere between uh, right before the, the New Testament begins, when the gospels that we read about Jesus and his narrative accounts. But you see this prophetic literature that's saying, okay, here's what God has done. And the people are become in exile, and then there's this period where they're just waiting. You can even see it in here. We're going to look at it. I mean, verse 1 of this chapter, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah is just crying out for God to come. And then this waiting until we see Jesus come in the New Testament. There, that's where the people of God are in this passage. There is a waiting. And if only God would just come down and fix things. If he would only just come down and take care of all the stuff that we see, if he would only come and, and we wouldn't have to wait, I mean, more or less three minutes, imagine years going by, hundreds of years, and all these things that have been prophesied just sitting there in the queue, and Isaiah never even seeing Jesus. Seeing the fulfillment of what he's waiting for. Doesn't that seem like often where we are on this side, on the other side of Jesus' coming. We hear Jesus came, we talk about it. We're studying Isaiah where he's kind of in a in-between moment. And that's actually very parallel to where we are. Because Jesus has come. We talk about it. The gospels are there. And yet God says, he's going to come back. He's going to come back. He's going to come back. And then we're in this place. And often it may feel this way to you if you if you're, consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And maybe you aren't. And you can hear today even some of what that means is we're waiting. We're in a period of a, he's come. And God says he's going to come again. But we're in this moment of in-between where there's just this tension of, God, when are you gonna come and deal with this? And all sorts of questions arise from that, right? Our anger, our, our suspicion of who God is, our, our, our discussions with people, and maybe again, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself cynical of Christianity and the church, those kind of like, oh, what's the point of this? I mean, are we just kind of biding time piously? Is there a real direction? What does that come to? This is where we're closing this book of Isaiah. We're closing the book of Isaiah with where it closes, with the waiting. And in waiting, it means two major characteristics that connect to our faith. If you really want to know what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it means we wait. And we wait by remembering what God has done, that he acts, that he works, that God works in history, space, and time, and that God is with us. He works and he's with. That's what Isaiah goes back to here. Well, let's look at this passage and, um, in this chapter, in the last two chapters. The first, it, it, when he talks about waiting, meaning remembering that God, what God has done and will do, it means it, that he's active, that he works. Verse 1, you see what he's saying, he's getting at, and what he feels like. And, and this cry is often what we may feel like. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The mountains might quake at your presence. God, would you just would you just t- literally the language is to tear open like a curtain? Just rip open the heaven, God, and just come down, show us. Just if you did that right now, it would just change so many things. That's exactly what he's praying. Isn't that what we pray often? God, if you just if you just ripped open the heaven, if you just appeared, if you just came right now in the midst of of, of this pain that I'm in, in in the midst of what we're going through around us, in the midst of what my family is, in the midst of my longings to have a a, a husband, a child, a a, a wife. Those longings we have, he's feeling that, that waiting. It's like we've heard all these promises, God, you've told us. And this is actually how Isaiah is a beautiful book for us. If you have not read it, uh, I would strongly encourage you to. There are 66 chapters, and this is what's fascinating about it. 66 chapters that in many ways parallel the 66 books of the Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are this building up, this, the issues of God's people and turmoil and, and struggle and sin. And then the last 27 really begin to say, there's going to be one who comes to rescue you. A servant, he's called, over and over and over. A servant who's going to bring you out, redeem you. And yet then there's this waiting. The book ends with that. It ends with the waiting. And it's called to remember that God has worked. There's this kind of idea, this hurry up and wait kind of idea here in this passage. And Isaiah really is speaking to you where you and I are in the moment because It's a preview in a sense of what it can feel like for us, like a preview for a movie that we won't ever see, maybe. We don't know. That's what Isaiah would receive. It was like a preview for something he would never even actually see in front of him. That was the life of a prophet. It was to proclaim all this amazing news, all the answers to those things, but never see them actually brought to fulfillment. It's so incredibly difficult. You see, waiting here can often feel like this for us. Our definition of waiting can feel like sitting in that line. I drove by Pancake Pantry this morning and look, even early this morning, the line was out the door. If you're new to Nashville, Pancake Pantry, great pancakes, tourist trap, you gotta do it, go do it. Great pancakes. Uh, right there, but the line's always long, it's always there. And they started putting coffee and water out to kind of keep you busy, right? But, There's the whole point of there's this waiting. It's like you're just kind of like coffee pass the time. In a minute, I'll eat pancakes. You know, like that's kind of what we think of. But the the Hebrew idea of waiting is active. It's actually an eager expectation. It's not a waiting. It's like, okay, God, we'll just we'll just trust that we're going to we're going to enjoy this one day. It's actually engaging yourself in the process of relationship with God because of what he has done. There's a, I saw a fascinating um, article uh, in the New York Times actually on why waiting is torture, and they did a study on waiting. And um, it talked about this, how in the Houston airport, they were having all these issues with uh, one of the two major airports there. They were having all these issues with baggage claim. You know, people would get off the flight. And they would get right to their baggage claim and then they would have to sit there for their bags to come. And it was taking forever. And they said they, they added staff, they added all these uh, ways to get the bags there faster, but people still complained. So they did something interesting. They moved the, the baggage claim really far away to make people walk. So that when you got there, It was less time standing waiting for your bag because you'd been walking the whole time and what happened to the complaints? They went straight down because people were busying themselves. And that's one thing that, that when you read about waiting and you read about what uh, we do, it's like when you cross the street. I know, I, and I know this crosswalk so well because when I used to work across the street at Vanderbilt, I remember pushing those like, deep, deep, you know, those things Those that say like to get the crosswalk to work. You know, those like really don't help much, right? Like they just make noises. They put like beepers in them. So you feel like you're going. Do you know that there's so much of that psychology if you read and talk about it, Uh, It it even says in this research, often the psychology of queuing is more important than the statistics of waiting itself. How can we cue ourselves to wait? There's an activity to it. But even more than this, we as people hate waiting. And if we busy ourselves, this is what's so great about having a smartphone, you can sit in a line and you can do those things and you can actively, you know, not engage with the actual anxiety or boredom that encounters with you, which we really need to engage. But here's even more of the point. Is Christianity a different way? Is, is Isaiah getting at this here? A different way to engage that waiting. Listen what he says in verse four. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No, eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Now, Isaiah's getting at something here, this active, active waiting, this trusting in him. It says in verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. There's an activity that's not just a pious busying, it's actually remembering who he was. Think about this. Verse 1, he says, oh, would you come down? And then in verse 3, he says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. See, waiting isn't just a passive biting in our piety. It's remembering God's real activity. What Isaiah begins to do here is to say, in this time, I'm looking back, and I'm gonna cry out to you. Look, there's all sorts of freedom here, it should be, for us to cry out to God. But it should also remind us and say, God, you have done these things. Like, historically, with coordinates on a map, you have actually done these things in space and time, and that's what he, he refers to. He says, when you did these awesome things, verse three, that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. We know that you have acted, God. We know that you are a God who works in history and space and time. Waiting has to do with our faith growing because it's not just a faith like so many other things of just piously going through the motions. What we actually are doing today is based on something that has been done. Done. Historically, to wait means you know that there's something that you're coming from, not just that you're going to. He, he, he responds by reminding us, look, the difference with Christianity than anything else, than any other religion, philosophy, or ideology is that the events actually drive the teachings. In other words, God doesn't just send us a lot of things to keep us waiting. He actually acts in history and space and time. The proclamation of Isaiah and further on, even in the New Testament, springs forth because God has actually, in his person and work, done things in history and time. That's where waiting comes from. Otherwise, our waiting becomes something of, okay, God said this. We actually have something more sure than that. Our waiting is, can become active and sure because he, has, he is active and sure. There's no one like him. Look at this. From of old, verse 4, no one has heard. That is, there's no history that can proclaim anything like you, God. You're so great. No, or perceived by the ear. Anything of revelation. Or no eye has seen a God besides you. Any experience, God, you are even beyond all history, all revelation, all experience. Who he is as the great God, that there is no one like him, and he is acting. And here's the beautiful thing: this, this, just like the Bible ends with Revelation, not only has God worked, but he will work. Right? It says we read this in verse uh, chapter 65, 17 and 18. For behold, I create new heavens and an earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what that which I will create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Look, what God has done and what God will do, and where are we? And where is Isaiah? And the tension of what has come. Like God has acted. You know I say this all the time when I when step down from here and go to the table to say that you know it was we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. That the language that's actually put in the Scripture about Jesus—that we're not just proclaiming the Lord's death. Yes, this is a table that proclaims something that actually tangibly happened in space and time and history. That's why the elements are elements, because this really did happen. But we're also proclaiming that he will come again, that this is actually a, a preservative, something that's preparing us, that he's coming again, that we sit in between those times. And if we lose the fact that God, that our whole way of life works through God working in events that drive our teaching, if we flip that, if the teachings drive our events, we will miss it. If, if we begin to just work off phrases and, and things and Bible verses and detach from God's actual work in history and space and in Jesus and the flesh, then our waiting will be frustrating because then it's just empty words that are never acted on. See, we actually get something that Isaiah didn't You and I actually get to experience the table in front of us set not just as a Passover meal, but as the Lamb who was slain, the actual one who came in flesh. And see, because God sent Jesus, it is to remind us that He may not, in certain spaces and times where we long and we cry out, we say, God, rend the heavens and just come down, doesn't mean He's passive. It means he's acted and that acting is working out. Look, when I'm at home so often and I'll be uh, playing with my boys and then sometimes I need to go in and maybe it's around lunchtime, you know, saying yesterday, this happened actually just two days ago, a day or two ago, Friday or Saturday, and I was in the kitchen making lunch and my boys will yell in and say, hey, can you come play with us now? Can you come play? And I say, oh, I'd love to. But I've got to make lunch. And they're like, no. I'm like, aren't you all hungry? No, don't, we don't need to eat. We don't, no. Come play, come play. See, they think because I'm not in the room that I'm, A, not doing anything. <laughs> and B, because I'm not playing, I'm not actually doing anything. But if I don't make their lunch, and I often tell them this, if I don't make your lunch, you're not going to be able to play anymore because you're just going to fall over. Your energy is going to be gone. You have to have those needs ongoing to do that. God is actively at work in ways and in in places. Even now, in this moment, even when you are not thinking of him, he is working in you and through you and around you and before you. This is what Isaiah is saying. You have worked in the past and you are going to work in the future in ways that I cannot even grasp, God. Would you remind me again? Come now, even in your presence, show me that you do this. Remind me. Because it's not just in the work of what God has done in space and time. It's in his witness, his presence. It's the actual presence that God gives Isaiah to encourage him, to keep God there. In verse five, it says this. <clears throat> you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. There's actually an interesting take on this that, that the translation there is actually about us abiding in God's ways, like actually abiding in Him. So the translation is actually saying to us that we are to, to find ourselves hidden within God. And, and if you notice in this passage when, when he's saying, rend the heavens, come down, there's, there's so much. You see Isaiah wrestling with the sin both in him and around him. And one of the things that really can destroy our patience and waiting for God is by seeing the sin in us and around us. Is when the voice of the mess we encounter in us and the things we see around us become far louder, far stronger and far bigger than we think God is. And that's exactly what Isaiah's is wrestling with. And we need to be honest with that. Look, I've seen and I've read, and you may have heard this and read this, so many recently, so many uh, people who are of big names that have been wrestling or even, quote, falling away from the faith of the church and of Christ. And it's really hard to read those things. And it's really hard to see them. And I, I think we honestly need to engage and ask. I mean, even some like uh, Joshua Harris, one of those writers who's really proclaimed this. And if you read why, and, and, and not just, you know, there's so many people who read this. And this is one way we, that Isaiah doesn't dismiss. Sometimes we can just dismiss those. as like, oh, they're just falling away and people can tear them apart. But I think we need to engage and say, why? What, what's going on with them? And how do we pray for them? How do we think about where all these are? And, and others who have said things like this, listen to this, and this is such an honest look. Uh, there's one who, um, uh, a major uh, singer-songwriter from Hillsong who uh, wrote this, he says, struggling with many parts of the belief system that seem so incoherent with common human morality. He, he hasn't necessarily uh, uh, abandon the faith, he says, but why doesn't God do such things of taking care of these things? Of course, there's an answer to these questions, but the majority of, of, of a typical Christian's life doesn't seem spent considering these things. Questions such as these remain in too hard for me to basket. Too hard for him to hold, he says. I mean, Many of us, uh, look, we, we, I read something like that to you because I think so many of us need to ask that question. Because the Bible is addressing that. We don't need to shy away from that idea. We need to engage it and say, you know what? My heart wrestles with the fact that, okay, God, are you really who you say you are? Where's the work around me? There's so much sin. That's what he's saying. There's so much disease. There's so many uh, uh, problems and sickness and and, and discouragement. How do we not be disillusioned in that? Here's what Isaiah says, and I I want us to recognize this. Right after that, in verse 5, he says, those who remember you in your ways. He says, behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? He sees God's salvation and our sin and wondering how in the world is this reconciled? How in the world is this going to be fixed? And then he even gives this incredible description of sin about being unclean verse six. And our, even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment and we're like leaves that, we're like dead leaves in the translation that float away because of the iniquity. He says there's sin, but here's what, notice he says, he doesn't say all the sin out there. One way we can really lose what it means to wait in faith and how it's connected to our faith and growing and trusting God is when we begin to say all the sin out there. Isaiah never does that. He says, we, notice every word he uses is in connection to himself. He puts himself in the position of seeing his own mess. He doesn't remove it. To trust God doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean you blame everybody else. To wait on God doesn't mean you blame everybody else. And it doesn't also, notice he doesn't blame God either. He says in verse eight, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. Look, we can grow so angry and so cynical in what it means to be a Christian. And so many of us can struggle with that. And and look, we've all been there. I've been there, you've been there. If we haven't, we're not wrestling with the reality of what it means to be in relationship with God. Waiting means a relationship. Waiting is so deeply ingrained in our faith, and it is such a picture of faith to the world around us because it means we trust in things besides ourself. That we believe that there is a potter and we are the pots, not the other way around. And that we don't dismiss and we don't point at other people's sin and mess and say, what a mess out there. God, what are you doing? Won't you just destroy it, wipe it out? Isaiah doesn't do that. He says, we, me, here I am. And he doesn't blame God, but he, he, he also doesn't move to despair. He says, My, the sin isn't bigger. God, you are. Look how he finishes Verse eight, but now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. What does he do? He connects himself. He not only identifies himself with his sin, but he, he ultimately, what waiting is, is trusting in the, his identity in God himself. Listen, C.S. Lewis said this so beautifully about waiting. Listen to what he said about this. I do not know why there is the difference, this difference, but I'm sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. When you do enter your room, you will find that the long wait has done you some kind of good, which you would not have had otherwise. But you must regard it as waiting, not as camping, You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. See what Lewis is getting at. He's saying, look, the point of us waiting and what it means for us to wait is to first, is to humble ourselves. If we know what it really means to submit ourselves to who God is as the potter, as he is sovereign. And, and some of you have asked me this week, if we've kind of done uh, CPC 101, and many of you have kind of gone through that round of what it means to join the church, and the number one question that always comes up to me is sovereignty and election and predestination that comes out of that class that many of you have asked. Some of you already asked that question, even have not, haven't going through that class. But what does that really mean him being the potter and father together means that in no way has his sovereignty or his predestination or his work ahead of time does it conflict with our relationship with him. And all it is to do is to drive us to assurance and humility. If it drives us to arrogance in any way, or distancing ourselves from him or other people because we think that, oh, he's the potter. He's got it all figured out. I don't really have to do it. We are missing what waiting is. Waiting is not passive, it's active engagement with the Father. That language is so profound that he intimately connects to us and that it drives us in active joy. There's this great story about, true story about, <clears throat> He's prisoners of war in World War II in a, in a specific camp. And it was nearing the end of the, the war, World War II, and as they were in this camp, they were able to smuggle a radio into the camp itself. And as they had gone through this, this concentra- concentration camp, this and they'd been working and working and working. As they heard on the radio, just trying to f- listen in, what's going on outside of this camp? They, f- they heard that the allies had actually won. They had actually defeated uh, and, and won the war. But in their camp specifically, things were as usual. Even though they heard that on the radio, they actually had to hide the radio again and wake up the next day and go back to their work as they had before. But it said that that it transformed the way that they even woke up and worked in their concentration camp. That their lives actually had joy. That they actually approached their work in that camp in a way of fulfillment rather than nothing ahead. They, they, They were able to work with joy and power knowing that the victory has been won. That is what we have in front of us. Right here is something that shows us and proves to you and to me that there is a victory that has been won. This table is one for us who are waiting. It's absolutely that. It's a reminder. It's not completed. This is a picture of our faith growing by waiting. Notice, this isn't a full meal. There's a reason for that. The Bible says one day there will be a full meal. It will be a spread that we can never, ever finish eating. And <laughs> it'll be incredible and we'll all be there together. But for now, we get a taste. We get an appetizer. We get a moment, a reminder, right? A remembrance. Do this. What does Jesus say? In remembrance of me. Because this is to remind us of what we're waiting for and to grow our faith in the process. But this is also an active table. This isn't a table you come up and take and just leave. It's actually a table of activity. Not just your activity of coming to it, but God's activity. This is a table that God has set himself. I didn't set this table. No one else did in this room. The only one that did is the potter. That is the Lord Jesus himself. You see, what makes our waiting real and valuable is how he comes to us. Jesus, over and over, you see in the Gospels, even expresses this to us, is that, oh, this generation, his longing for us to be with him, and him even going ahead of us, preparing for us to meet him, all the while, in every step along the way, never leaving us, what does he say? Even when he ascends into heaven, we're going to actually look at this passage in a couple weeks. In the end of the Gospels, he ascends into heaven. And his followers are all like, Where are you going? He says, Lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. Because our waiting is a with. And God never leaves us. As much as you taste this bread and this body, is as much as God is working in you now and is with you presently. And your waiting will never be futile, ever.